My name is Mary Beth, and I'm a member of the Al-Anon family group. Hi, everybody. I want, before I get started, I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Most of all, for giving us this opportunity to renew old friendships and to fill our cup to overflowing. The AA Big Book tells us <clears throat> that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession we have. For when we can show others how we have been helped, we find a very real purpose to our lives. And so I want to share with you a little of my experience, strength, and hope. I first heard about AA in my first year in college at a small girls' school not far from St. Louis. One of the girls there entertained us with the escapades of her stepfather, and this opened a whole new world to me. And she talked about a group of people who helped those who drank too much. While this was all very interesting information, I doubt that I'd ever have any further need for it, because by my mother's definition, nice people do not drink. I grew up in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, and at that time, Oklahoma was a dry state where bootleggers abounded, but I never saw a bottle of liquor in my parents' home. Drinking on a date at this girls' school meant that you got confined to campus if you were caught. And if it happened more than once, you got sent home. Since I was there on a pretty hefty scholarship, I thought it'd be a good idea for me to abide by their rules. But in the fall of my second year, I met Ed. And my definition of nice people changed. As it applied to him, not to me, because I waited until shortly after we were married the following September to have my first drink. It soon became apparent to me that the way to have a good time was to have a drink or two. We didn't know anybody that didn't drink, but in looking back, it would probably be more correct to say we avoided people who didn't. Drinking meant parties and fun, and I loved it. So you see, contrary to that popular belief that we hunt up problem drinkers and marry them to reform them, I did just the opposite. I just wanted to be a part of all that good time he was having. Ed enlisted in the Air Corps, and we spent most of the next four years apart. On those days when I thought we should have been together, you know, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, birthdays, anniversaries. By the time Ed got home, we had lots of celebrating to do. It seemed to me that we were forever making up for lost time. The first that I remember that we discussed drinking as something we should be concerned about was at the time our son Eddie was born. The Reader's Digest published a letter from an alcoholic father to his son. Now, I really don't remember that AA was mentioned, but I do know the man regretted 
the unhappiness that his drinking had caused. So when Ed said that some of the things in this article hit pretty close to home and he was going to have to watch it, I pushed it out of my mind. I did not want Ed to stop drinking. What would we do for a good time? I shrugged off the embarrassing things that happened. You know, they happened sooner or later to everybody that drank. And I became what is known as a good sport, and I say this in capital letters and quotation marks, and I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. I blamed everybody but Ed and me for the problems that we were having. The president of the firm he represented was a cantankerous old man, and anybody would need a drink after a day in the office with him. The manufacturer's representative who came to St. Louis several times a year this man drank too much, and he got yet drunk. I hated that poor man, even though his visits to St. Louis made an, meant an evening out for me. More and more is where kept him in St. Louis, or at least that's what I told his folks and the children. You know, he got home later and later and more often had to go in on Saturdays. I was not only affected by the disease of alcoholism, I was infected by it. If we had an invitation to a party and I was concerned about the drinking, I couldn't say, well, I'm sorry we can't make it Saturday night. I had to tell some elaborate tale about what our plans were, and then I very promptly forgot to whom I told what, and this called for another explanation, and it just went on and on. During this time, I became a very good wife and mother. Ed's folks told me so, and I agreed with them. Never mind that I was a strict and a stern disciplinarian. I was so anxious to keep the children from getting on Ed's nerves that I never allowed him the privilege of disciplining them. And I reaped the consequences of this action because one of our children blame mother for daddy's problem. Things were going from bad to worse and I had no idea what to do about it. I have a good imagination and I live more and more in the world of my imagination. I'd watch for the mail, sure that I'd won one of those giveaway contests and the money would solve all of our problems. And my imagination helped me rehearse the speech I was going to make when Ed got home. I could go to bed at 10 o'clock, go sound asleep, but promptly on the dot of one bar closing time in our area, I'd be wide awake. And I'd be so angry, and I'd think, we're going to settle this thing once and for all. But Ed would stop me before I could stop by saying, can't we talk about it in the morning? And I have yet to figure out how I thought I could discuss anything with somebody who starts to snore, still sitting on the side of the bed taking off his socks. And then there'd be those other times when it would be very late. And I was so relieved to see him 
that I hadn't a thing to say. Going back to sleep was often an impossibility, and I tried to figure out why this was happening to us. Many of the things I read said that the woman, that the man who drank had the wrong wife, and I didn't see how this could be because I loved it, and that answered that as far as I was concerned. There was never a question of loving or not loving. I think that maybe if I went away for a while, it had stopped drinking, and everything would be all right. I really don't have a problem with the second step when I think about this. I think that maybe if I'd go as far as in the money in my purse most times would have allowed me to get to downtown St. Louis a distance of 30 or 40 miles. I'd be gone for about a year. I knew the kind of a job I could get. And in order not to be discovered, I'd use my grandmother's maiden name, Mary Elizabeth McDonald. I'd be gone about a year. And then Utopia. Now, I never felt that I was deserting our three children, leaving them without care when I planned all this, because Ed was a good father, and they loved him dearly. And never did I contemplate divorce, because for me, the cure would have been worse than the sickness. You see, I had nearly four years of living apart from Ed, and I knew I didn't want any more of that. And I'd had to face the fact that I might have to spend the rest of my life without him when the doctors told me that he had leukemia or at best an incurable blood disease with maybe six months to live. Now that was a long time ago and they were wrong, obviously. So I guess you'd say I'm old-fashioned because I meant it when I said for better or for worse. From a tape of Dr. Bob's last talk, I learned that the early AAs felt that you should read certain parts of the Bible. And one of those passages so recommended was the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I learned this a long time ago when Mother taught it to us, substituting the word love for charity. But I like even better some of the new translations. If I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not arrogant or rude. It is not jealous or boastful. Love does not insist on its own way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. that the heart of every life, every poem, every song, every story is love or the lack of it, love or the need for it, love or the hope for it. Love is everything. Life was becoming intolerable and I had no idea what to do about it. I hated what love had become, what Ed had become drinking, but I did not hate Ed.
One day, when he was feeling worse than usual, he said, it's as though I've been poisoned. Maybe I'm allergic to alcohol. Well, I knew he broke out of those red, splotchy, highly-looking things, so I said, well, quit then. But you'll have to do it yourself. I cannot do it for you. And you know, I don't know whether I was promising or threatening. And I reminded him on various occasions that if he didn't straighten up and fly right, he was going to have to join the women's, the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, never AA. I had read someplace that you don't threaten a problem drinker with Alcoholics Anonymous. Eventually, the drinking got to the point where I thought one of us should stop drinking. And for me, it was not a big deal. And this began a very unhappy period in my life. And I don't mean because I had stopped drinking or of the financial problems and there were other problems in our life. But because I felt so shut away from it, it was as though between us there was a wall a thick glass wall and I couldn't get over it or around it or through it. And in turn I began shutting people out of my life. I was determined that we were going to have a normal life as far as outward appearances were concerned. I participated in the various organizations that a good wife and mother does. I even held offices in some. I'd go to the meeting and do what was expected of me but come the social hour, I was long gone. I was so afraid that by a slip of the tongue, people would see that things weren't what they were supposed to be in our household. I let nobody get close enough to me to see my bewilderment and confusion at what was happening to me. When somebody got too close to me, I'd draw a curtain around my feeling and leave only the facade. Even when people in great kindness tried to reach out to me, they got as far as my glass wall. I avoided being in the position of having to greet anybody with anything, with any more warmth than the briefest of handshakes. It was though by touching me, you'd break through and see my uncertainty. I regarded as weak people who were unsure of themselves, and I eyed with suspicion emotional people. And I schooled myself to feel or show nothing, joy or sorrow. And all the while I did this, I hated myself for living on the surface. I yearned for the comfort of knowing that people could like me, and perhaps most importantly, that I could like me. It's been since we've come to this fellowship that I have learned the true meaning of the old song, the greatest joy you'll ever know is to love and be loved in return. The greatest surprise is being loved. It's like the touch of God's finger on your shoulder. I have learned since I've been in this fellowship that I need only be me, not some person that you think I ought to be. In the humility of the surrender of my will and my life to the care of the God of my understanding, I'm finding myself. 
I am learning to be the very best Mary Beth I have ever been. I have learned that humility is not the belittling of self, it's the forgetting of self. Humility is being able to see the bad and the good qualities. Much as I want to improve myself by recognizing those traits I want to eliminate, I must be able to see the God-given good qualities too. All self-approval must come from a a seed of self-appreciation that is as far removed from conceit and pride as day is from night. By nature, we don't have any defects that cannot become a strength, nor any strengths that cannot become a defect. I learn from everybody I meet, but I cannot be them. I can only be me. By the time that Ed got to AA, all the fun had been drunk out of the bottle for both of us. There was a change in Ed. It was gradual and subtle. There was a change. And if I felt shut out before, I felt closed out now. Up until the very end of his drinking, there'd been moments of communication, mostly when we'd sit at home after the children were in bed, and I'd make every effort to push away the nagging doubts and fears. I tried to push away all the problems that were going to be there to be faced tomorrow. You see, I'd learned a long time ago that you make your own luck. And I was not accepting any of the responsibility for the rotten luck we were having. At the time of our marriage, I was naive and very much lacking in self-confidence and poise. But it's love for me changed that. He told me I was pretty, told me I was a good cook, told me I could do things, and because I loved him, I believed him, and I began to develop poise and self-confidence. One of the things that nearly broke my heart was when I realized that I had not been able to do this for him. You see, I was not, he had to find his answers in a bottle, and I was not capable of giving, only of taking. When Ed first started going to AA, our non was mentioned briefly and disparagingly, and so I stayed away. Oh, I went to an occasional meeting, mostly on those times when Ed was taking a new man to a meeting and his wife wanted to go. Now the people who belittled Al-Anon took Ed and me to our first open meeting and there were two couples, man and wife, and the men at that time had had 25 and 30 years of sobriety and I figured they were the experts. And they did not speak highly of Al-Anon, so I stayed away. Things were going better. And I sure didn't want to be the cause for the return to the drinking days. But there was a change in it. And I, I wanted to share his new life. I, I'd been around for all the bad, and I wanted to be a part of this. I knew about the 12 steps. 
I had read the big book, and I tried in every way I knew to be a part of it, but I felt more isolated than ever. And then we met a couple, AA and Al-Anon, and they convinced me that this program was for me. I can still remember the shock I felt, almost as though she had struck me when she said, Ed, will leave you. Oh, maybe not physically, but spiritually. And you'll have less instead of more in common. So a year and a half after my husband found AA, I found Al-Anon. And I will tell you now that in gratitude for the rest of my life, I'll be trying to tell the family of every newcomer to AA about its counterparts, Al-Anon and Alateen. One of our Al-Anon publications tells us that the uninformed, misinformed, or just plain disinterested spouse is a major block to the full recovery of the alcoholic who wants to stop drinking. Al-Anon is for those of us who love an alcoholic. Our primary purpose is to help the families of, of alcoholics, and the only way I know to do that is to share my experience, strength, and hope. For your own benefit, Mr. or Mrs. AA member, get your partner to an Al-Anon meeting. The spouse of an alcoholic becomes affected and infected by this terrible illness. I know I was. I told you that in the early days of our marriage, I began to develop poise and self-confidence. But during the bad drinking days, much of that was eroded away. I became suspicious and critical and cynical, altogether the kind of a person I did not want to be. I want to make it clear that Ed did not do this to me. I did it to me by the way I reacted to situations. I cannot blame anyone. When you welcomed me to Al-Anon, you told me there was no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. And I was skeptical. So I had to live through some more difficulty in order to become believing. We're not promised immunity from difficulty, but peace in difficulty. When you welcomed me to Al-Anon, you told me that by using and applying the 12 steps, the benefit derived would be limitless, and I would become ready to receive God's gift of serenity. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd put God on the shelf, and I expected to have to take him down again when I was ready for the rocking chair. Here I was trying to be a good person, I didn't understand why all these things were happening to us. I certainly wasn't doing any of the things that were making front page headlines. So why was all this happening to us? And the God that I believed in at that time was remote. Was, there was no personal communication. But I read in one day at a time, at a time that the 12 steps were written for desperate people like us is a shortcut to God. 
By using and applying these 12 steps, we become ready to... We become ready to use the God-given good qualities which we have allowed to lie dormant. Until a man finds God, he begins at no beginning and he works to no end. And so I knew that I'd better get busy using and applying these 12 steps to find myself and ultimately God. The fourth step was not an easy one for me and I avoided it. And I sat down with a pencil and a paper and I put it aside and I don't know if the word was discussed or what, but I put it aside. And then I sat down with the dictionary. There was a list of traits and uh, patience and I could say sometimes maybe. And I looked up those words in the dictionary and that guided me to writing my inventory. I found that I did not really understand all the words. And I also found that when I stopped to think about the meaning of the words, I remembered when I had or had not been able to have this characteristic. And then I found, I read an article and this gave me the idea that if I thought of the inner me as being like a cave, dark and confused and mysterious and sometimes frightening to penetrate, but often containing unexpected and spectacular scenery. If I stop my exploration where instinct and reason bid, if I stop before I uncover all of the things I need to know about, I'll never make it to the highest and the best place. I'll be treated to the shame of knowing that there are unexplored regions, and I'll be lower than I might have been. So how do I find God? I ask you. And you said, act as if, and pretty soon it will be. The proof of God is not in the future. The proof of God is in the past, in all those little coincidences that Phyllis Jean talked about this morning, but I don't call them that anymore. And I found that once I started to look for him, I had already found him. Bill Wilson wrote, Believe more deeply. Hold your face up to the light, even though for the moment you do not see. And the eleventh step has been where I've learned the most about this, because it tells me that I am to seek God through prayer and meditation. Prayer, which is listening as well as asking.
and meditation, which is God's, which is man's lifeline thrown out to God, who in turn binds me to him with a promise, that beautiful promise that I will be given the power to carry out his will for me. When we first came to the program, I heard a man say that he'd thank God for the troubled days because he grew on them. And I thought he was out of his mind. We'd had all the problems I was interested in having. Thank you. But I think I know what the man was talking about. I have come to understand that it is not necessary for me to know how and why problems come into my life, but it is necessary for me to understand that God brings problems into my life for me to grow. God knows me, and he knows what I can do and what I cannot do. He lets me ask the impossibilities of him, but he only asks what is possible of me. God stretches me when he knows that I am capable of going farther. Not to the breaking point, but to the growing point. Weathering the storms has brought Ed and me closer together, as well as sharing all the joy. It has deepened our belief in each other and our tremendous faith in God. We grow not only on the happy days, but on the bad days. And I never have to face any sort of a situation alone, because the God of my understanding is with me always. I think that he, I believe that he is a God of joy, and I share my joy with him. I believe that he would not have created all the beauty in nature and all the possibilities for good in mankind if he were a vengeful, wrathful deity. And I share the small details of my life which make up the completeness of life. If I don't take him into my everyday life, he may not be able to intervene in a crisis. Alcoholism is a family disease, and our girls were not at home when we reached the crisis. Beth was married and living in nearby St. Louis County with her husband and two little boys, and Nancy was away at college. One of the most difficult things for me to learn was to let go and let God, as far as the girls were concerned. And yet I realized that our children were ours, but for a little while, because I thought about it and I remembered that I had not lived in my parents' home after I was 17, if you count the years away at college, the two years away at college. But I found I wanted to let the girls go on my terms. It's taken some doing for me to realize that the plan that I make today, I may change completely tomorrow another today. It is always today, isn't it? 
With Beth, the letting go was not quite so difficult because she was married during her first year of college. And she is, she was considered a math and a science genius when she graduated from high school. And she's finding fulfillment in research. Nancy graduated from high school with straight A's. But she managed to louse up her second year of college so that she was placed on academic probation. In other words, she flunked out. And Ed and I went up and got her and brought her home and we said, we laid down all these good rules and said, uh, there's a curfew time. You devote to devote so many hours to study and get yourself to a, the local college and you will commute. But then she had other ideas. She decided to be independent and she left home. And for some time we had very little contact with her. And the brief times that we were together were filled with tension and unhappiness. It is strange that our children are alien to us and often best understood by others. Perhaps this is God's reminder that we give them their flesh only and must never claim them. It's not really a question of the generation gap or youthful stubbornness and rebellion, but that no man knows another. The commandment is that we honor our mother and father, not that we love them. I could not compel this child to love me, to see my point of view. I had to stop blaming myself for whatever went awry in a relationship. I had to realize that I did not set out to be a bad mother. I did the best I could at the time under the circumstances. And I found that when I stopped anticipating her reaction to everything that happened, we began to act like mother and daughter. Not long before she completed her nurse's training, we got a letter. And it said, thank you and dad for letting me find myself. And most of all, Thank you and Dad for just being you. Nancy's a registered nurse, and after the various stages of her career, she called about three years ago, and she said, can I come home? I'd like to go to uh, school and work part-time. Would it be all right? And of course I said yes. And you know, Nancy got that degree a year ago in August. She's never worked part-time, but full-time. And that was a year ago, and she's made no mention of leaving. She's now working as a nurse in the emergency room at Children's Hospital in St. Louis. And I'm so tremendously proud of her. You know, I could not ask more could I than that our girls be of service to mankind in the work that they've chosen, Beth in research and Nancy 
as a nurse. I'm more fortunate than most women. There are two very important men in my life, Ed Sr. and Ed Jr. Eddie was 10 when his dad found AA. And if our fellowship needed or still needs a press agent, we need to look no farther. There was not an Alateen group in our area, but Eddie has shared our AA Alanon life. He's attended a good many gatherings such as this, and he's sat in on almost every session. You all were his heroes and his heroines, and he can tell some of your best stories better than you can. And from you, he has learned acceptance, love, compassion, and understanding. He has a spiritual basis for his life that he could get nowhere else. It is truly a product of this fellowship. And time flies. Eddie will be 31 in November. And he's living in Atlanta with his wife and three little boys. My heart's desire for Eddie, that he continue to practice these principles in all his affairs. The AA Big Book tells us that we deal with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I would add another word, patient. When Ed did not pick up his eight-year card, I realized that at that moment, his sobriety meant more to me than it did to him. I was concerned, but I really never thought he'd drink again. It, it just never occurred to me. But until Ed talked about his illness, his relapse, and for me it was never difficult to accept the fact that alcoholism is an illness. And I only, I became more and more aware of that with Ed's relapse. But until he talked about it, I felt above all that it was his problem and his story to tell or not to tell. My sponsor is not my home group, but I discussed the situation with her. I continued to go to meetings. I tried to go on in nearly as normal a way as I could. I fought the feeling of walking on eggshells. I tried not to anticipate Ed's reaction and turn gear my actions to his. And I will tell you that it was, to this day, nobody's ever talked to me about Ed's illness. It was never the subject of any meeting that I attended. I was grief-stricken by the return to the acute stages of the illness. But grief responds to human understanding. And if I ever 
see somebody in such a predicament, I intend to say to him or her, is everything all right with you? And if the person can't talk about it, I'll understand. But at least they'll know that I care. For a while I was hurt by your apparent indifference to my pain, but I realized that you expected me to be able to handle it, and because you expected me to, I was forced to go. It was the greatest thing you could have done for me. And I found that you don't stop loving, no matter how unhappy you are with a person. One night when Eddie came home from a day, he said that I know where Dad's sleeping in the car. And I said, well, take me there. And he says, why, Mom? It won't do any good. And I said, for my own peace of mind, at that moment, I could not have said, because I love him. But I heard myself say, as I unlocked the door, Move over, honey. I've come to drive you home. And I knew as I said that, I'd never stop loving yet. Although I might walk away because I could not bear to see him destroy himself, I would not stop loving him. One of the most difficult things for me to handle was the agony of not knowing where Ed was when he was gone for a few days. I can only describe it to, to you as pure hell. AAs don't have any corner on the market when they talk about that. I've been there and I know what I'm talking about. When Ed got sober the first time, we didn't know about treatment centers or drying out houses. Ed walked the floor and I walked the floor with him. He quit cold turkey. And when we go to bed at night, now Ed's a big man, he's six feet tall and weighed at that time a little more than 200 pounds. And in my stocking feet, I'm five feet three and I weigh about 120. And he'd have those jumps and starts and whatever you call them and I'd hold him in my arms all night long. For weeks, he couldn't drive himself any place, but he couldn't stand to sit home, and I'd drive for him. I'd drive until I was exhausted or it was time for Eddie to come home from school, and I'd say, honey, we've got to go back. And we'd be there a little while. And gradually, he calmed down. But I know what I'm talking about when I tell you about the agony of loving an alcoholic. And I learned more about loving. Loving does not start with the person I love, it starts with me, the one doing the loving. And loving is self-centered. Not, it's not ego-centered. It's not self-sacrificing. And it's not capitulation. I love you for free, with no strings attached. And I found out more about release with love. And I think I do a pretty good job of releasing our children with love. But I found I had to do that with an even greater depth as far as it is concerned. Great as my love for him is, 
it limits him to what I want him to be. But when I release him into God's unlimited love, he can become what is God's design for him, not mine. And so my life changed again. By living the 12 steps of this program, Ed and I turned what was a disaster into a success story. Ed got a real estate license, and after a little while, he said, Honey, I want you to do this with me. Now, I'm telling you this not to brag, but to tell you that you can start over again at any stage of your life and become a success. We overcame many obstacles, not the least of which was an age discrimination. The papers say it doesn't exist anymore, but don't you believe in it does, but you do not have to let it defeat you. So I got a real estate license at the age of 58 and eventually a broker's license and that was eight years ago I knew I was going to make it when in 1958 before the end of the year 1985 I'm sorry <laughs> in 1985 before the end of the year I closed a million dollars in property sales in 1986, it came a little earlier in the year, and this year, by June the 29th, I had closed more than a million dollars in sales, and this is in a market where the average sales price is slightly under $48,000. I did not do this alone. I had not only Ed's help, with the help of my sponsor and the people in and out of the fellowship. Ed and I are a team. We work together every day and we complement each other, not competing against each other. And I don't, I don't know what our ultimate goal is, but we, in our work outside the fellowship, are in service to mankind. And there's so many people we can help. We can find a way for them to have that most important thing of all, a home. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. I know I need people. So won't you take my hand and let me walk with you because as with no other people I know, God walks with you.